0: Thank you. I didn't think I'd be emotional, but thank you. Rob is really great at announcements, isn't he? (laughs) Standing ovation. Uh, um, I should probably explain if you're a visitor. Uh, My name is Benji. I'm the senior pastor here. Um, I've been gone for seven months, and it's my first Sunday back. So we don't normally greet our preachers this way on Sunday morning. Um, It could become a tradition, I suppose. and the reason we're, everyone's wearing all black is because that's usually what I wear. So if you're wondering, uh, there is not a funeral after the service today. It reminds me of when I pastored the church in Texas, I had a guy who would always come up to me every day and shake my hand and say, it looks like you're going to a funeral. And I would reply, well, maybe I am. From the Johnny Cash movie, Walk the Line. So he would faithfully do that every Sunday. So I've been gone the last seven months. Um... I'll explain more of that as we go along, but I want to say thank you to, there's some really good friends here at Grace who have walked with me through this season, friends uh, around the world who have walked with me. I want to thank the staff and the elders and the deacons. Uh, The elders had, I'll explain in a moment why, but the elders were faced with something uh, in a church life that doesn't happen much in church history. And to see them walk through this and seek the Lord, it was very difficult for them. So thank you, elders. Um, Thank you for all those who filled the pulpit while I was gone. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks to Pastor James for preaching for seven months. If you want to pay James back, here's how you do it. Pray that the Lions win today. And in lieu of Chick-fil-A gift cards, pray that the Lions win. Um, And I just want to thank you. Thank you for those of you who reached out. I know some of you... This was the one moment in my life when I felt like I could actually feel people praying. I would wake up some mornings and think I should be so depressed, but I would just feel lifted up. I could actually feel people praying. So thank you for those of you who've been praying for me me and my family. Thank you to my kids. My kids have been my rock through this season. They've sat with me as I've cried. They've handed me Kleenex. They've said, Dad, you've got little bits of Kleenex all over your beard uh, from crying so much. They've prayed with me. They've shared scripture with me. All six of my children have just rallied around me and saying, Dad, we love you. You're going to make it. So thank you to my kids. Um, We're starting a new series uh, today, and we're leaving Colossians behind, which is where we were. I was going to come back and go through Colossians, but there's a passage on husbands and wives, and honestly, I just feel like I can't go there yet. So... Uh, We're going to do a new series um, in Genesis, so I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Today is also Sanctity of Life Sunday, so we've got to deal with that in our sermon, talk about that, and then I'm going to talk about my life over the last seven months and kind of catch you up on what is happening. So we're going to do all of that today in one sermon, so buckle up. First, we're going to pray. Our prayer of confession and celebration today is about when it seems like Jesus does not care. Luke ten forty says, Martha came to Jesus and asked, Lord, do you not care? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when Martha called your empathy and compassion into question, thank you for giving her grace and not taking offense. Though she only felt underappreciated, there are times when we experience Crises, stories, and heartaches that seem to contradict your compassion, care, and control. When darkness hides your lovely face, we become vulnerable to all kinds of graceless voices like the devil's toxic whisperings Where is your Jesus now? Or karma replacing the gospel telling us, You're sick because of hidden unconfessed sin. Or the narration of a cynical friend or weary family member or nosy neighbor, like Job's wife telling Job, curse God and die. Or our own emotionally exhausted, pain-fueled monologue. Maybe there is no Jesus. Maybe I'm better off dead. Lord Jesus, though you don't always explain yourself or fix things on our timetable, you will never crush the weakest reed, or put out a flickering candle. The scriptures are very honest about life between your resurrection and return. We will have days when mystery is more real than mercy, when heartache is more tangible than hope, and when pain is more convincing than providence. But we will never have a Jesus absent day. When we're angry like Jonah... Disillusioned like Job, fearful like Elijah, doubt you like John the Baptist, or were beastly like Asaph, despairing of life like Paul, you welcome us and you meet us right there taking no offense, only giving us grace. Jesus, no one cares like you. No one understands suffering like you. No one has done more to eradicate all death, mourning, crying, and pain. Thank you. Meet us today and meet our most weary friends through us. So very, amen. So we're starting a new series today which I've titled Messy Discipleship during my sabbatical i worked my way through the psalms because i needed language to express the pain in my heart but i also uh, worked through the narratives of abraham and company in the book of genesis and i studied their lives and as i did that i was reminded of just how messy life can be families are messy marriages are messy relationships are messy church is messy people are messy everything is messy And people are broken, and they can sometimes do some very stupid things. People can be idiots. You may know a few. People can be idiots like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and us. And that's why we need the gospel of Abraham and company. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 Now, the back half of Genesis 11 often gets overlooked as people move from the Tower of Babel uh, to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. People often overlook this section. They fast forward through these paragraphs because it's a genealogy. You know those passages that you love to highlight and underline in your Bibles? Verses like so-and-so begets so-and-so, so what? But this is God's word. And there is gold to be discovered even in a list of ancient Near Eastern names that you struggle to pronounce. Even in a passage that doesn't even mention God's name. I mean, imagine that. What can we learn about God from a passage that doesn't even mention God? Answer, enough truth to comfort your heart. And that's what we want to do today. We want to comfort hearts. We want to see bruised reeds And smoldering wicks cared for, just like Jesus. As Matthew says in Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's the kind of church we want to be, a place where broken sinners and broken pastors can find healing. This is where I want to be. I don't know about you, but this is the church I want to be at as I'm going through what I'm going through in my life. This is the place I want my children to be as we go through what is going on in our lives. We want to be a church where broken sinners, even broken pastors, find healing because that's the kind of Savior we have. He's gentle, and He's kind, and He's merciful, and He's caring, and He's gracious, and you can even find Him and a 4,000-plus-year-old genealogy full of weird names. Okay, Genesis chapter 11. Look at verse 27, and hear the word of the Lord. I've wanted to say that for seven months. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law and his son Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, doesn't that just warm your heart? I mean, you've got two paragraphs full of eight strange names, two deaths, three marriages, two widows, one orphan, one barren woman, and one big move to another country. Why in the world would you ever want to skip something as glorious as this in your Bible reading? Okay, I'll admit on the surface, these verses may not give you the warm fuzzies. You certainly won't find them on a coffee cup or on some calendar. You might not get goosebumps when you read them, but you should. Why? Because these verses, though they don't mention God's name, though they may seem boring... They can actually tell you a lot about God if you learn to read between the lines. And if you do, then you'll see that Jesus is there. You just have to know where to look. And what we'll learn about God if we read between the lines and enter into their story, what we'll learn is this, is that when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. When you can't trace God's hand and you wonder what in the world he is doing in your life and why he is allowing what is happening in your life, you have to learn to trust his heart. When you are at a loss from all the loss you have experienced, you can trust the heart of Jesus. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Trust that he is the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And that's what Abraham and company had to do. Now, let me say that right now, at this point in his life, his name is Abram. It will be later changed to Abraham. So if I call him Abraham now, or if that slips out, even though his name hasn't changed yet, give me a little grace. I'll do my best to say Abram until his name changes in Genesis 17. So Abram and company had to learn to trust Yahweh's heart when they couldn't see his hand. And if you're new to grace, you should know that God's covenant name is Yahweh in Hebrew. So when I say Yahweh, I'm talking about God. I'm talking about the Trinitarian God that we love and serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Abram and company had to trust Yahweh's heart when they couldn't see his hand. And where could they not see his hand in their life? Where did they struggle to see God's hand in their life? Well, their family had experienced two deaths, the death of their father Terah and the death of one of his sons, Haran. And these two deaths left behind an orphan and a widow. Plus, they left their their home in Ur of the Chaldeans and planned to move to the land of Canaan, some 600 miles away. And then they got to Haran and... We're tired, I guess like Forrest Gump, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to stop. So they stop, and then their father, Terah, died in Haran. They didn't quite make it to the land of Canaan yet. So this family has seen their share of misery. They have suffered loss. And then you come across verse 30, which says, Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. So on top of all the trauma, on top of all the sorrow and the suffering that this family has experienced, Sarai, whose name will also be changed later to Sarah, Sarai is barren. She can't have any kids. This is devastating for any couple, but especially so in an agrarian society where families depended upon their children to help them take care of the family farm. So Sarai and her husband Abram Abram have been trying to get pregnant, but it's not working. They've been to the doctor. They've tried all the, the ways to get pregnant, figured out monthly cycles and the best time for that to happen. They've done all the old wives' tales. They've used up all their essential oils, but it's not happening, and that's sad. You're supposed to feel the sadness of verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, of course, if you know the story, sorry, this is a spoiler alert, Sarah will later get pregnant. Sorry to spoil that for you, but this story has been around for 4,000 years, so if you haven't caught up, that's on you. Sarah will later get pregnant when she's 90 years old. Let that sink in. Yahweh will eventually cause Sarai to get pregnant. But she doesn't know that yet. We do because we've read ahead. But for Abram and Sarai right now in Genesis chapter 11, after moving 600 miles away from their home and family, after Abram's Abram's dad died, they had to deal with this heaviness. No kids for Mr. and Mrs. Abram. What could they do? What can you do? What if you're in a situation now, right now, like Sarai and Abram? What do you do? What if you want kids, but you have not had any success? What do you do? You trust Yahweh. You trust Jesus. You grieve, yes. You cry out to the Lord. You scream even. And you dream, and you hope, and you keep trusting Jesus. So it's sanctity of life Sunday where we celebrate all human life but especially life in the womb the unborn and on this day we take another opportunity to condemn the great evil of abortion the evil of abortion that's what it is it's murder So we take an opportunity to condemn the great evil of abortion, but also we come alongside and comfort those who have had an abortion or whose wife or girlfriend had an abortion. And if that describes you today, if you had an abortion, or maybe you encouraged your wife or girlfriend to get one, and you are now trusting in Christ alone, please know that you are forgiven. You are forgiven of that sin. Jesus has thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness. He remembers it no more. And one day, you'll be reunited with your little one with zero shame, zero regret. And one day, you'll hold that little one in your arms and you'll dance and you'll sing and you'll play. That's the hope of the gospel. You just keep thinking about that. You keep that sweet reunion in mind of you and Jesus and your unborn child reunited and experiencing pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. But what about those who often get overlooked on Sanctity of Life Sunday? What about the Sarai's and Abrams in the room? who are praying desperately to see some positive signs on a pregnancy test. What about them? What do they do? What do they do when Genesis 1130 is their reality? They do what every disciple has to do with whatever situation they find themselves in. Trust. You trust. And you have to remember that God is good when life is not God is good when life is not good. And you have to preach that to your own heart. Because what Satan wants to do when you are suffering is to try to convince you that God is not good. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when the serpent asked, Did God really say he was bringing the goodness of God into question? He wanted Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness as if God were holding something back from them by saying, you can't eat from this tree. And that's what Satan will try to do with you, whether you're suffering from the consequences of an abortion or like Genesis 1130, you're grieving infertility or you're mourning the death of a loved one. What Satan wants you to do in those moments is to begin to entertain the idea that God is not good. And so you have to preach Psalm 119.68 to your heart until you believe it. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You have to rub that into your pores. God is good. God does good. Teach me that truth, Jesus. Rub it into my pores, Jesus. You are good. You do good. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too wise to be wrong and too good to be cruel. God is too wise to be wrong, to do anything wrong. He never does wrong. He never does evil. He never sins And he's too good to be cruel, too good to be mean and vindictive. He is wise. He knows better than us when we think we know better. And he's good all the time. And you have to preach that to your heart when your life goes south and when you find yourself living in Genesis chapter 11. So what do you do when your spouse breaks bad and goes rogue and wants a divorce? What do you do when your spouse wants to leave you and they have no biblical grounds for said divorce? You trust Jesus. But what do you do when you're a pastor? What do you do when you're a pastor of a church and your wife breaks bad and goes rogue and wants a divorce when she has no biblical grounds? You trust Jesus. What do you do when your wife refuses the authority of God's word, ignores repeated pleas to repent from the elders of your church, and then later gets put under church discipline and then eventually voted out as a church member? Oh, yeah. What do you do when that happens and you're a pastor? You trust Jesus. You preach to yourself that when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And that's what I did when the aforementioned happened to me over the past seven months. And that's what I'm trying to do today. I don't understand what God is doing in my life and in my family. I can't trace his hand. I'm confused. I am perplexed. So I'm learning to trust. So let me take some time to tell you what my life was like over the past seven months After Heather said that she wanted a divorce, wanted a new life, and wanted to live for herself. It was a Genesis chapter 11 situation for me. Things happened to me and my six children that we didn't ask for, that we didn't want. We don't want it. We still don't want it. In short, it was hell. And it still is. Divorce sucks. It hasn't happened yet. We still pray for her heart to change But it looks like it's headed that way, and it's hell. And I've told people as I've gone through this that I wouldn't even wish this on the devil. Now, please understand what I'm saying here. I'm speaking in hyperbole. This is a conscious exaggeration to gain effect. Of course, I hate the devil. But to let you know the depth of the pain, to let you know how awful it is, because you can't understand until you go through it. That's what I've learned through this. You can't understand until you go through it. I will counsel people who are divorced or going through divorce in a completely different way now because I'm in the middle of it. But to let you know the depth of the pain and how awful it is, I joke that I wouldn't even wish it on the devil. That's how awful it is. I hope you get my point. It is incredibly painful to have your spouse walk away from your marriage. Every nerve ending in your heart is on fire. And those of you who have gone through divorce know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the Bible says in Genesis 1.24 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that's why it hurts so much. Because we're one flesh. And now we're being pulled apart, an arm ripped off here, a leg there, a finger here, an ear there. All this ripping up and separation, that's not supposed to happen. And so my sabbatical this past summer was not a true sabbatical. Right before it started, Heather told me that she wanted a divorce. Now, this isn't why I went on sabbatical. The sabbatical was already planned. But right before my sabbatical, she said, I want a divorce. She said, you're a great husband, a great father. You haven't done anything wrong. I'm just done. I want a new life. And that was a kick in the gut. And I was discombobulated. And so in one sense, it was not a true sabbatical. In fact, I joke that it was my traumatical. That's what I called it. You can laugh. I laugh a little bit about it now. It was my traumatical. It was trauma. And I didn't really end up resting like you're supposed to on your sabbatical. Yes, I got a break from the rigors of preaching and pastoral ministry, but it was not rest. I tell people that I didn't rest. I wrestled. I didn't rest, I wrestled. I wrestled with Jesus for three months and then the past four months as well. Three months straight, I wrestled Jesus every day. Just like Jacob wrestled God in Genesis 32, I wrestled Jesus every single day. Now you need to know something else about my sabbatical. Uh, Prior to Heather even mentioning bringing up a divorce, I'd already decided that I wanted to focus on and strengthen my friendship with Jesus during uh, July, August, and September. So I read two books that were very good for my soul, Friendship with God by Mike McKinley and Friendship with the Friend of Sinners by Jared Wilson. And these two books deepened my friendship with Jesus. And as I wrestled with Jesus, I kept in mind what may be the sweetest words in Scripture from the lips of Jesus himself. He says in John fifteen fifteen but I have called you friends. Six of the most beautiful words in the English language. Friends. We can be friends with Jesus. When's the last time you were flabbergasted by that truth that you can have the creator of the universe be your very best friend? When's the last time you were just shocked by that? And because I knew Jesus was my friend, I knew I could wrestle with him. And I knew I could even scream at him, yell at him. You may have noticed the title of the sermon, Jesus is my best friend, and sometimes I scream at him. Listen, I took Jesus at his word. I told him, Lord, you said that we're friends, John 15 15. Well, Jesus, friends get in each other's faces. They confront each other. They challenge each other. They even yell at each other. So that's what I'm going to do, Jesus. And I did. I yelled at Jesus. You ever done that? I screamed at him. Maybe you heard, heard it across the parking lot. I have no idea. And guess what? I didn't get struck by lightning because I'm standing before you preaching his word. Now, of course, I took in the fact that God is holy, that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. I mean, I'm an idiot, but I'm not that dumb, okay? There was no disrespect in my voice, no disrespect in my prayers. There was honor, but there was also honesty. Maybe the way we honor God in prayer is by being honest. Maybe the way we honor God in our prayers is by being honest with God when we pray. And I figured, If Jesus is omniscient, and he knows all things, and since he knows my heart even better than I do, then he wouldn't be surprised, and he would be big enough to handle my screams, also known as my prayers. And so I cried out to him, asking him all the time, why? Why is this happening? Why Jesus? Listen, if I had a penny for every time I asked Jesus why over my sabbatical, I could buy every single one of us a Tesla. I screamed at Jesus saying things like, why won't you change her heart? You're the only one that can do so, so why won't you just do it? If I could, I would. Father, this is your daughter. Why won't you change her heart? Jesus' scripture says you're, you're our older brother, so Heather's your little sister. Why won't you change your little sister's heart? Holy Spirit, you live inside of her. Why won't you change her heart? Why won't you rewire her heart? And I scream those prayers, guttural prayers from the bottom of my soul. Why? 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 And if this seems foreign to you, just look at the Psalms. Why prayers are all over the place. Let me just read a few. Psalm 10, why, O Yahweh? Do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22, you are familiar with? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Psalm 44, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? In Psalm 88, oh, Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why, 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 why? And that's just a sample from the Psalms. Listen, in the Psalms, God is giving us the freedom To question him. He's giving you the freedom to question him. Why is this happening? Why won't you do something? Why won't you answer my prayer? I'm not asking for a mansion and a million dollars. I'm just asking you to change my wife's heart. He's giving us the freedom to question him. And he's actually inviting us to scream and yell and pour our hearts out to him. I think audio Bibles on our phones should have a scream feature where you can actually press a button and hear the psalm being screamed instead of like uh, you get some British guy who's like, you know, the audio Bible on my phone is like, why do you hide your face from me? You know, I want to hit the scream button and have it say, why do you hide your face from me? That's how you have to read those psalms. That was a terrible British accent. I wasn't trying to do that. But that's how you have to read these psalms. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you forgotten me? Why is my wife leaving me? Why won't you change her heart? That's how you're supposed to pray sometimes. Understand this. Sometimes faith screams... Sometimes trusting God looks like yelling at him and questioning him. Sometimes faith screams. Sometimes trusting God looks like yelling at him and questioning him. And that's what David and company do in the Psalms. Faith screams because faith screams at God. Yelling at God is faith because in faith, you are calling on God. You're calling on God himself to help and to intervene. And so sometimes faith screams so much for having a quiet time. Listen, I did not so much as have quiet times on my sabbatical as I had question times. I had scream and yell times. I asked God why so much that I think some days some angels may have whispered in God's ears, hey boss, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but could you answer this guy's prayer? He won't shut up. But sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. Sometimes he doesn't give us the reasons why he does or does not do something. I don't know why Heather is doing what she's doing. And I don't know why God is not changing her heart. But I trust him. And I'm reminded again that Romans 8.28, it's real. You probably heard it a million times, I know. But someone here today needs to hear it for the million time. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things, even a pastor's wife leaving him, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. All things work for good. Even Genesis 11 things. Even a pastor's wife leaving him. And leaving the family. And that's the hope that I'm holding on to. Is Romans 8.28. An old friend, but we've kind of renewed our friendship lately. Ray Ortlund captures this truth when he said, reality plays out at two levels simultaneously, human purposes and divine purposes. The two can be opposite, evil and good, but God knows how to get down underneath the evil and reverse it for good. And that's my hope. God can get underneath it all and reverse it for my good and reverse it for the good of my children and reverse it for the good of this church. And that's why my go-to verse has been this, Psalm 27, 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. How I have said that to myself over and over the past seven months. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, there were times over the past seven months when I prayed Mark 24. I believe, help my unbelief. But there were also times when I honestly said to Jesus, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. Listen, Jesus is big enough to hear honest, raw prayers. Jesus is big enough to handle all your why questions. He handled all mine. He let me cry out this summer and this last week, why, why, why? And you know what? Being real and being raw and screaming and yelling and questioning Jesus actually deepened. My trust in him. (laughs) Yelling at Jesus deepened my trust in him. Screaming at Jesus made our friendship even closer. It deepened my friendship with him. And now, I know what Paul means when he says in Philippians 3.10, all I want is to know him and to experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's it. I wanna know him more. What about you? Do you wanna know him more? Do you wanna know your savior more? I wanna know him more. I've been walking with Jesus 45, 46, 47 years. I don't know, I was very young when I placed my faith in Christ. 45 plus years I've been walking with him and I want to know him more. I want to fellowship with him in suffering. And I have. I now know Jesus on a deeper level than I ever have before. Seminary could not teach me this. Knowing the biblical languages could not teach me this. I think in one sense, there is no way to go deeper in some respects of your friendship with Jesus unless you suffer. There are depths of friendship with Jesus that perhaps cannot be reached unless you suffer immense loss, pain, and suffering. Let me say that again. I think in one sense, there is no way to go deeper in some respects of your friendship with Jesus unless you suffer immensely. There are depths of friendship with Jesus that perhaps cannot be reached unless you suffer immense loss, pain, suffering, and betrayal. This is the fellowship or the friendship of sharing in his suffering that Paul's talking about in Philippians 3.10. And who is our friend Jesus? What's he like? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A man of sorrows. Wow. Acquainted, familiar with grief. Wow. Isn't that what you want in a Savior? One who knows what it is to suffer? and to experience loss and betrayal and sadness, Jesus was not immune to suffering and pain, betrayal, or loud crying prayers, or screaming at God. He is one who, as the preacher of Hebrews tells us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus knows what it is like to suffer. Jesus knows what it is like to go through hell. Jesus knows what it's like to go through a whole box of Kleenex in one quiet time. And so do I. Jesus knows what it's like in his humanity to question God. The man of sorrows cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the ultimate suffering. And he did it because he loves you. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. And that's why when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Listen, if you can trust him with your salvation, you can trust him with any situation. Let me say it again. Think about it. If you can trust him with your salvation, your eternity, can you not trust him with any situation that you find yourself in? God is sovereign over these two paragraphs in Genesis chapter 11. And he is sovereign over whatever is happening in your life right now. He is working in and through and under and around the most horrible events of your life. And he's great at reversals. He plays the long game. We don't need explanations from God. We need Jesus. Now, we want explanations, don't we? I want explanations. I know that. I feel that. But the lasting peace that we all crave will not come from explanations, only from intimacy with Jesus, being friends with Jesus and then one day in this life or the next Jesus will turn our why into wow. And whatever it is you're going through right now is you're saying why God why one day Jesus is going to turn your why why lord why he's going to turn it into wow. I didn't even see that coming. And so hear the promise of the gospel today for whatever you're going through. Matthew 12:20. This is your savior. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Because he is gentle, tender. He is kind. He is merciful. And he cares. He really does. And so you just pour your heart out to him. And scream if you have to. Let's pray or scream. Lord Jesus, though you don't always explain yourself or fix things on our timetable, you will never crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. The scriptures are very honest about life between your resurrection and return. We will have days when mystery is more real than mercy and heartache. It's more tangible than hope and pain is more convincing than your providence. We will have those days, but we will never have a Jesus absent day. Jesus, no one cares like you. No one understands suffering like you. No one has done more to eradicate all death, mourning, crying, and pain. Thank you. Meet us today, and meet our most weary friends through us. So very amen.